Oh, I'm a pansy. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you can move off my penis. Why does it have to be confrontational? The American uh, people, I think, people. They, are, they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Sometimes you have to hear from someone else. That is all that matters. Yeah, 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 enough of that. Welcome back to the Cold War 151, I believe, right? Concur, I concur. So, Cam, big things going on here at the Harris household. I didn't tell you last time. Uh, tomorrow we're having our septic tank drained out. Pretty excited about that. Uh, it's going to smell better. Everything's going to work better. It's good times for the Harris household. You still have a septic tank. Well, I live in the middle of nowhere, so this is country living, my friend. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We don't have uh, those fangled pipe things that you and the Romans came up with. Uh, no, it just all goes down to a tank. It makes my yard beautiful and yet smelly at the same time. We had a septic tank up until I think the, I'm guessing late 70s, mm-hmm. early 80s when I was growing up. And all I remember is whenever it rained, <laughs> it would sort of overflow. Yes. And yeah, there'd just be this shit smell across the backyard. Well, we got nice. mostly pretty flowers out of it because it's right over a flower bed that's going to get torn up tomorrow. But anyway, so I just want you to know big, exciting things are happening here. No need for jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm. I'll send you some pictures. Yeah, scratch and sniff. Um, <laughs> so the last episode, we sort of talked about the Tukhachevsky right. purge, and uh, you mentioned that the Reaction Research Institute, the RNII, that he had created to do, like, rocket research. Yeah. Sort of got shut down to a large extent after the purge. A lot of the rocket engineers working there were arrested <clears throat> under the theory that they were sort of fifth column. And, they I mean, there was still some work done on rocket artillery, like the famous Katyusha yeah. multiple rocket launcher got developed and rocket boosters for aircraft. And then, as you said last time, when the German V1 and V2 rockets Turned up in 1944, the Soviets uh, started to invest more in long-range rockets, and the engineers who survived the purge and the war were able to now study German rocket science and uh, build on top of it. On the 8th of August, 1945, two days after the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, the Politburo kicked off a new five-year plan, which officially got started in March of 1946, and they had to make decisions about the plan in the context of building the bomb. The guy who was the Minister of Finance then wrote in his memoirs that finding the financial resources for the five-year plan proved more difficult than they had originally anticipated because of the uh, amount of money that was being spent on nuclear research, they had expected that when the war was over, defence yeah. spending would drop. Yeah. You'd be able to spend it on rebuilding the country. Right. But now they had to spend money on building this fucking bomb. And this is something else that I think people in the West don't 
uh, often fully appreciate. Mm-hmm. You know, when when uh, commentators in the West want to um, denigrate Soviet countries right. like Soviet Union, like Cuba, uh, like uh, uh, North Korea, Vietnam, whatever, Venezuela. Yeah. Um, they tend to look at their point at the economy and go, oh, look at their economy. It's fucked. You can't <laughs> buy point. food. You can't do this. You can't do that. Compare it to our glorious capitalist <laughs> paradise. Toilet paper everywhere, you know? my friend. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, yeah. You can use it to, you know, pa- toilet paper someone's house. We've got so much toilet paper. But they don't, they don't. Stop and think about right. you know the 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 factors involved here. Now, take the Soviet Union as an example here. Of course, so as I've said a million times, uh, when the revolution happened in 1917, the country was you know fucked economically. As Stalin himself said in 1931, they were a hundred years behind the West, <laughs> right? Because because of the the czars yeah. and the nobility and all of that quo. kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Right. They were very, very slow to the Industrial Revolution, getting rid of their serfs, building a proletariat, Educating working classes, people. right? They were, yes. Yeah. They yes. were mostly peasants and nobility. With septic um, tanks. And, right. The peasants, I mean. So uh, they, were, they, they came at it, you know, for 100 years behind. They had a lot of catching up. Plus, massive population growing all the time that they needed to feed and do all that kind of stuff. Then, smack bang, uh, they got a whole bunch of wars going on. They got the Sino-Japanese War, the mm-hmm. fucking Polish-Soviet War, World War One. the smack bang in the middle of, uh, all of that kind of stuff, hitting yeah. them, famines, you name it, uh, which, which compound the fact that they're already 100 years behind the fucking eight ball. Then all of these things are going on in their country, plus a civil war, when the Bolsheviks right. overthrow. Plus then after the Civil War, the Americans, well, during the Civil War, the Americans and the British think it's a great time to invade to try and support the royalist right. side of the uh, equation, right? Yeah. So they're dealing with all of that. Yeah. People dying, all of their focus, concentration, energy, money, trying to fight all these fucking wars. Then they get into World War II and they have to fight that fucking thing. Then they get out of that... They still can't focus on rebuilding and pull all their focus on it because now they need to build nuclear weapons because America has nuclear weapons and is basically threatening to drop one or more on them. And they've already shown that they will use it. And and if I can add another layer to that, Stalin, and we'll we'll get into detail on this later, but I just want to mention real quick, Stalin has no intention of giving up Eastern Europe Poland in the Ukraine that he's captured because fucking Western powers have come through there twice now within within his living memory and tried to invade and take over, destroy um, Russia. So he's going to hold on to that to build that wall, build that barrier. So he's got to keep troops there. That costs money as well. So they were hoping they could cut money down massively, not spend it on nu- nuclear weapons, not spend it on a massive army, but rebuild the 17,000 villages lost. 20 million people are gone. They've got to redo all of this, and now they're going to have to parcel out money here and there because they still have a an external threat that they have to prepare for. Now, all as I said uh, last time, and I've said it over and over, all Soviet leaders at the time believed that eventually yeah. the socialist world would end up at war with the capitalist world. This is basic Marxist theory. 
Capitalist countries will not let socialist countries survive because it's an existential threat mm-hmm. to capitalism. Not for the reason we were told during the Cold War, oh, they're, they're coming, they're going to invade us and rape our women and murder our children. Right. But because uh, the survival, the success of a socialist country would mean people, as they are anyway, <laughs> now they're, 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 what, they want to make Bernie Sanders the president anyway because they're like, <laughs> yes, we want socialism. How many times do we have to fucking tell you? This Capitalism, bad. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we want socialism because we're being <laughs> fucked up the ass on a daily basis by you capitalist cunts. We want food. We want health care. Yeah. Get out Education. of the fucking way. So, yeah, people wanted so. But this is exactly yeah. what American, the American elite and the British elite and the, and the Greek elite and the French elite and the Spanish elite feared in uh, the 30s, mm-hmm. in the 40s and the 50s. This is exactly what they feared, that the people, if the people saw right. hey. what the, not, you know, yeah. that it could be good, right. that you, there was a better way, that they would want some of that shit. They would want some of that hot, tight socialist ass. They want to tap that hot That gives it away ass. for free. Well, not free, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You, you can yeah. get it. Um, so from the, so- from the Soviet perspective... Uh, the 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 40s as the 30s were was was just a breathing space, but between wars, uh-huh. the late 40s yeah. into the 50s, yeah. they didn't see it as a time of peace and prosperity. They saw it as as a breathing period where yeah. they could get ready for the next walk that they were absolutely convinced was coming, and they were right. Yeah, absolutely right. Wars. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In November 1945, uh, Molotov said that the Soviet Union must equal the achievements of contemporary world technology. We will have atomic energy and much else. Yeah. I mean, they have to have they have to keep up with everybody. Like you like we said on the last show, it's the 1930s all over again. We cannot be second because those who come in second end up getting their ass kicked. We can't not tolerate that. We weren't quite ready when the Nazis invaded and we lost 20 million people. We will be ready this time. Yeah. So from August 1945, when the bombs were dropped onwards, Stalin had two basic problems. First, he needed to bomb as quickly as possible to make sure that the Americans didn't have any military advantage. Right. Second, he also needed some sort of counterweight to American air power. Yeah. The U.S. then, as now, had air bases in Europe, all within striking distance Ready to go. of the Soviet Union. Yeah. But there was no way back then the Soviets could attack the United States too right. far away. They didn't have uh, Soviet air bases on the Canadian border and the Mexican border. No. Or just off the coast until they had nuclear submarines. And we saw what happened when they did put some missiles in Cuba. Oh, eight shit. The Americans H-ship. lost their fucking minds. <laughs> Look, it's okay for me to have a knife at your throat, but how dare you, sir, have a knife at my throat? I mean, that was our reaction. Yeah, exactly. They're crazy, these Russians. They're trying <laughs> to start a war. You can't trust. <laughs> if... <laughs> Well, you've got missiles pointed at them on there, but wow, that's different, though. Right. They're the bad guys, right? Right. Well, it, the point American is, in 1945, logic. we could have taken 
because uh, I know they were building a couple of atomic bombs after the two they used. They could have taken a couple of bombs, you know, transported them to Europe, put them on a plane on their side of Germany, flown over and just obliterated, you know, Russian cities. Um, so this is a very real threat. Stalin's punching power is limited, but he does have a few options. Yeah, so if you can't attack the United States in the event the United States attacks you, what you can do, what he could do, was threaten to attack the United States' allies and, more importantly, trading partners around Western Europe. So if the US attacked the Soviet Union, he could counterattack their trading allies, which... He knew that that that's terrifying because, as we've said over and over again, war is about economic. Can't even talk. Wars are usually about economics, Mm -hmm. and uh, the Marshall Plan was about buying American entry into Western Europe, guaranteeing yes uh, future customers in Western Europe. Because they needed that for their own economic strength. The Americans needed that for their own economic strength. America had been through recession after recession after recession. It was overproducing. It was producing more stuff than it could sell. And it needed these foreign markets. And if Russia took them out, then America would go. I mean, not that the Americans cared about Europeans getting killed, I don't think. But if they had, they would have ended the war a lot earlier than they did. Uh, but it was about, oh, shit, we're going to lose customers? Yep. Fuck, we can't have that. Can't, can't lose customers. So conventional weapons that right. the Soviets had were modernised, air defences were strengthened, and that was a big part of his focus. Now, from the from the Western perspective, we're always like, oh, look, he's getting ready to attack yeah. the West. He's getting yeah. ready to attack Europe. Take over we the need world. to defend them. Yeah. NATO, NATO, yeah. NATO, we need to defend Europe. Right. From the Soviet perspective, it's like they're surrounding us with missiles and air bases. We need to be ready to defend ourselves by attacking their trading partners. Right. I mean, I mean, it's you. It's it's just amazing that you grow up in America, and by the time you're in middle school, you learn all the wrong lessons, and then you grow up, and then you have to unlearn all this stuff. And, and it's nothing amazing or incredible. You just have to see it just for a second from the other person's point of view, and it late makes a lot more sense. But we were absolutely terrified in the 70s and the 80s, the whole bomb shelters getting under your desk. I mean, this stuff was real. They wanted to either destroy or take over the world, and we were the only thing stopping them. I mean, that was the role that we portrayed ourselves in. And, and, it's, and it's hard to shake that. Even nowadays, when you hear people talking about communism or whatever, it's just hard to shake that, which you were, you know, which you were raised with. Well, they, they're playing the same game now, except they just say it's the Russians. It's they're not a, saying it's right. the communists. It's Good just point. the Russians are yeah. trying to destroy our Take over. country. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I, mean, I was going to say, it's a bit like, um, homosexuality like you 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 get raised thinking it's wrong and right. it's evil and it's a sin you take one dick up the ass and you're like oh it's uh you know what yeah. I, I get it i get it now <laughs> it was a beautiful experience yeah it's just you know uh, as long as you're lubed up correctly and uh, you do some stretching exercises right. are we recording gradually this? are we just talking you start with a you start with a little butt plug and you get a little bit bigger butt plug a little bit big plug by the coke bottle and you're ready 
But I think the point we were making before the anal sex came into this was that the best that Stalin could do to cancel out the, the atomic bombs was either take over or destroy Western Europe. That was his mutual destruction, the best he could do at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, regarding nuclear weapons, until he had one, Stalin kept downplaying it, um, like, like I did when the iPad first came out. You know what? I don't, I don't really see the point of an iPad, quite frankly. It just looks like a big iPhone to me. Right, right. Nah, don't see what all the fuss is all about. But did, I got one. Did you mean it? And oh, I was like, this oh. is the fucking greatest thing that's ever been invented. <laughs> I'm in love. I mean, ten years later, I'm still in love with my iPad. Really? That's my third one, probably, I think, by now. Oh, love it. Live on it. Wow. If I'm not recording a podcast, well, you know, during the day I work on my MacBook, but oh, the rest of the time, weekends, travel, I'm going on all the, I'm doing this, going down to the, well, I might take my laptop actually for this because I think I'm going to have to show people how to record podcasts at this workshop that I'm doing. Right. But, yeah, yeah generally speaking, everywhere I go now, I just take my iPad, run my life on it, fucking love it, <laughs> love it. Can't wait to get the new one. When I I have some money. Anyway. Right. I was going to say, and like Stalin, he desperately wanted the bomb, but until he had one, he had to go, "Eh, you know, I don't don't see what all the big whoop is. Yeah. In September of 1946, uh, British journalist I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Alexander Wirth, Mm -hmm. was uh, interviewing Stalin, and he asked if he thought the American monopoly of the atomic bomb was a threat to peace. And Stalin replied... I do not consider the atomic bomb as serious a force as some politicians are inclined to do. Atomic bombs are meant to frighten those with weak nerves. But they cannot decide the fate of wars since atomic bombs are quite insufficient for that. I bet I could win with two. Meanwhile, yeah. Meanwhile, he's trying to build one as quickly as possible. Right. (laughs) And he's organizing the fuck out of his own country and and all the resources of his country to get there. So, yeah, but he plays a good game, and I'm sure he did confuse and confound Western leaders. Yeah, he's like, you don't scare me with your big atomic bomb. You try and use it. I'm not scared. I, I am I am a red Superman. I, I I grab your bomb. I throw it in sun. I eat it. I take it out with yeah. heat vision. Right. Yes. Pew pew. Uh, now, uh, I mean, obviously, this is a bit of a ploy to tell you know to say to the Americans, you can try and use this as a negotiating tactic, right. but it's not going to work because I'm not scared. Right. And he's also doing it obviously to try and boost the morale of the uh, Soviet people and the Soviet troops. Right. Don't worry about the bomb. They're not going to use it. Yeah. It's all talk. <laughs> now, by the summer of 1946, the basic institutional framework in the Soviet Union for developing nuclear weapons, as well as long-range rockets and radar and jet propulsion, have been developed. They had a bunch of special bodies set up in the party, the government, the secret police, and the armed forces to drive all of this. It was a massive exercise. In 1945, they had already scientific and technical councils created for atomic bomb and rocket development. Vanikov headed the Atomic Council, the guy with the the, the fat cunt who used his body fat to to bounce back neutrons. 
um, and Pavukin and Kirkchov, Kirkchatov, right. K, right. were his deputies. There was also a special department of government, also headed by Vanikov, that was managing the nuclear program. Secret police had a department for atomic energy. Half of all the research for nuclear weapons development was done in prison institutes, <laughs> while most of the construction and the mining was done by prison labour. Right. So, you know, that's why he uh, Stalin had to put a lot of people in prison because <laughs> he needed someone to work on the well, bomb. Just because you're a prisoner doesn't mean you can't contribute to the welfare and safety of your country. I mean, you're still a citizen, so get your ass to work. But the point is, they and like you were saying, they had all these different committees, all these different councils, all these different meetings, meetings about meetings, meetings about meetings that are coming up. It normally, I think it would have normally been crazy, but because Stalin is at the top and the person who's immediately at the top of all of, of this pyramid scheme, if you will, is Beria, the man who's in charge of security, who can and will have you shot because he can. Uh, you, you just get the sense that there was a lot of progress on a regular basis because one, there is a national emergency. We have to get, we have to be able to defend ourselves. But two, Stalin is looking over everybody's work they're going to get a lot of shit done. Now, they obviously wanted to build nuclear weapons as quickly as possible, and they had to make sure that they were able to get their hands on all of the resources available to mm, them to do that. Right. Not just not just mineral resources that you talked about in a, cu- a couple of episodes ago, but also all of the human resources, all of the scientists, all of the engineers, all of the people needed for constructing laboratories, laborers, that kind of stuff. This had to get first priority on everything because it was an existential threat. Yeah. Yes, we need food. Yes, we need roads and we need railroads and we need all of these other things. But if we don't have a bomb (laughs) to threaten the West with, counter-threaten... It won't matter. ...then it won't matter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And now, after the Potsdam conference, Iggy K became a regular visitor to the Kremlin. Uh, one one of one of the industrial managers said to him one day, "Tis easy for you to solve problems. You meet Stalin every day." Could, could you picture Iggy K sitting down with Stalin? So I was like, "Sit down, my friend. What what can I do for you?" And Iggy K goes, "Well, I've got this one guy. He's good at his job, but a bit of an attitude. He could work a little faster." Stalin's like, "Give me a name." I will handle it. I mean, how do you not solve problems when you regularly meet with a guy who can do and will do anything that he wants in the country? I mean, that's how you run an operation like this. Yeah, but I think it's more like every day he Stalin says, "What? What do you need, my friend?" Right. He says, "I I need uh, I need a hundred more people uh, working on uh, fucking digging uranium right. out of ground." Done. You have it, Done. my friend. Done. Two hundred. Like. Yeah. But the point of this is Stalin, like, it was hard to get in to see Stalin. Yes. Stalin's running an entire country right. of n- nigh on 200 million people. Right. Rebuilding after the war. And Eastern all Europe. All this kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, 200 million is the Soviet Union in totes, I think. Right. Um, but uh, uh, this guy got a meeting with him every day. Yeah. That's how much of a priority the nuclear project was to Stalin after Potsdam. Every day, come and meet with me. And if I could add on to what you were saying a second ago, and this is going to sound very strange, but the only good thing 
about the war was how it ended, besides the Soviets being on the winning side, because they had Eastern Europe and they had half of, not half, but they had part of Germany. They've got access to all that foreign technology that you were talking about, the German scientists, the technicians, the equipment, the production plants, a lot of that stuff and those people are going to be uprooted and taken to Soviet Russia and, and put to work. So again, they've got access to a lot of this stuff. And they they also got a lot of sources from the Lend-Lease program from America and Britain. And when they started getting stuff in uh, 1941 or early 1942, they found that the American and British stuff was better than what the Soviets were producing. But like a lot of intelligent people, they would take what they got they would make their own version of it. They would make it even better. And then so by the time the, the war, the end of the war comes, they've become really good engineers and they figured out a lot of things. And I have to tell you this one quick story. Uh, during World War II, the United States sent Soviet Russia 200,000 Studebaker trucks. The Studebakers were one of the favorite items that the Soviet forces loved. They were really tough. You can load up a bunch of equipment, load up a bunch of guys, go through the mud, whatever. These were workhorses. The guys loved it. But Americans, maybe being the, the dicks that they were, they would pencil in on the side of the truck USA. But there was a particular way that the Soviet troops would um, would interpret USA. Instead of trying to get rid of it or erase it, they would say, they would tell newcomers that it stood for Ubit. Sukina Sanya Adolfa, which loosely translates into to kill that son of a bitch Adolf. So they would tell everybody who was coming around that the USA supported them so much they were writing kill that son of a bitch Adolf on the side of these trucks. <laughs> I like it. Now, uh, of course, they were getting information from their spies like Klaus mm. Fuchs. Yeah, Doesn't fucks around. No. <laughs> he was the British spy that was leaking information to them, and they were getting they had spies in the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. So they were getting information from Western spies on how to build a bomb, but yeah. um, you know they didn't get everything or the right. secret of how to build a bomb uh, from the West. As Niels Bohr said, the only secret of the atomic bomb is that it can be built. <laughs> so once you once once the idea was out there, uh, yeah. the theory behind it was pretty straightforward. They just needed to work out the technicals right. of it. Right. But they got a lot out of uh, German rocket technology. Uh, in 1945, a bunch of Soviet rocket scientists went to Germany to figure out what the Germans were doing. And the first long-range Soviet rocket, the R-1, which was test-fired in October 1947 was a modification of the German V2. Mm-hmm. And we know that the Americans gained a lot from the German rocket program as well, Operation yeah. Paperclip, etc., etc., because when uh, the Red Army was approaching Pyrmund, the main centre for German rocketry, Werner von Braun <coughs> took his team and basically <laughs> gave himself and his team over yeah. to the American forces. He he, he could tell which uh, <laughs> side of the bread was going to have the most yeah. butter. Exactly. And he uh, chose to do that. And, and the other part of that is the Soviet army, were, were the leading Soviet forces were about 160 kilometers or 100 miles from Punamunda. In early 1945, von Braun gathers his staff and he goes, okay, look, 
Germany's going to lose. Who do we want to surrender ourselves to? And by this time, there's horrible stories coming from Soviet Russia about what the Russians are doing to capture Germans, because why? The Germans did it to them when they were going the other way. So it doesn't take a scientist like von Braun to figure out, let's give ourselves to the Americans. So they move a little bit further west. Um, but the problem was they had gotten an order from one of the uh, someone in the army to quit whatever research you're doing, pick up a gun and help us fight. Well, these are a bunch of scientists. They say, fuck that. So they follow the mm-hmm. previous order they were giving to to go set up somewhere else closer to north central Germany. They go there knowing that the Americans are going to get there first. They they. Uh, turn themselves over, they turn over all their documents to them, and then suddenly America's got this huge head start, if you will, for what all the Von Braun and his program has been doing and and what they've learned when it comes to these rockets. But the Soviets still managed to get their hands on some rocket scientists, Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact thousands of German engineers and technicians end up being taken to the Soviet Union to work with the Soviet scientists that were still there despite the purge. Right. And uh, the the Soviet Union, the point of all of this is that the Soviets invested a lot more, a lot sooner in rocket development than the Americans did. Because the Americans already had the bomb. Yeah. And they basically figured, well, that's it. Done. Uh, Right. But uh, the Russians, as I said before, needed to defend their border. Yeah. So they needed rockets that could attack a variety of Western European sites for self-defense. Yeah. uh, If they they got attacked. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in October of 1946, Ray, uh, American journalist by the name of Hugh Bailey mm-hmm. sent Stalin some questions, which Stalin responded to. Huh. What were the and questions? Bailey asked. Yeah. Huh. I'm glad you asked, Ray. <laughs> I will tell you. <laughs> yes. Uh, he asked if a recent speech that Jimmy Burns had given. Right. Old Secretary of State where he said that tensions were rising in Soviet-American relations, if that was true, if he agreed with that. Stalin uh. said, niet, niet. He was asked if he thought the negotiations about peace treaties would succeed, and Stalin said he hoped so. Uh. About the danger of war between the Soviet Union and the United States, Stalin said that, in his view, Churchill and his friends were to blame for the current tensions and the fears and he said that their efforts to instigate a new war had to be exposed and restrained Mm. trying to put pressure on the other side that's not a bad move and i look and and i've said this before and i'll say it again i genuinely believe stalin didn't want a war at this stage he doesn't make any sense he had to rebuild the Soviet Union. He had a ton of work to do. He didn't want a war for at least 10 or 20 years. Right. They, they, they needed to rebuild. On the other hand, uh, the, the Americans and the British had good reasons to want another war. Uh, as I said before, they had to crush the socialist experiment because if it was successful... Oh, yeah. Uh, They would have socialist revolutions in their own countries, Mm -hmm. was their fear. Yeah. And probably justified. Um, As as well as they wanted to bring Russia and the Soviet Union into their economic trading bloc 
and they wanted to prevent them from you know, uh, competing with their existing trading block. So if you look at it on paper, uh, the, Rus- the, the Russians had a lot less to gain, a lot less incentive to want to increase tensions and to lead to a war than the Americans uh, did. Oh, yes. The West did, Yeah, I think. I mean, the, the, again, in the West, it was, there was always this betrayal that, oh, the, the communists are going to try and take over the world. But we know that Stalin, this is why he fell out with Trotsky in the first place, Stalin was an advocate of socialism in one country. Mm-hmm. We have to make it succeed here before we have the wherewithal to influence revolutions in other countries. Mm-hmm. Trotsky, on the other hand, was an advocate of uh, permanent revolution, uh, socialist revolutions around the world, which was more classic Marxist right. thought. That messy. you messy. Well, yeah. I mean, how how are you possibly going to keep, hold, maintain your country, and also try to start revolutions? I mean, that's just. I don't know that's, that 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 could very quickly become so unpredictable. I just don't see that being a viable plan. I see that being I see that being intellectually stimulating to academics, but as far as real world application, you don't just go around and fuck with other countries and other governments and think it's going to work out the way you want it to. I agree with Stalin. Well, it's not. Well, it's not so much about fucking with it. I mean, it was about supporting. Yeah, mostly through you know education and moral uh, support yeah. and maybe thought leadership. I call that fucking with the, other countries, but, but that's just my take. The, the nascent uh, socialist parties in those countries that wanted to uh, you know have their own revolution. Gotcha. Uh, maybe some military support. Maybe sending some military advisors in as uh, uh, America uh, <laughs> tends wants to, to do. do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the theory, of course, being that uh, you, in order for socialism to survive in the Soviet Union, they needed, they needed the support of socialists around the world to get their own countries, A, not to attack the Soviet Union, and B, to, you know, trade with them and, and uh, support them economically. Uh, uh, so, yeah, look, that, that was the theory. If we right. don't have... If we don't rapidly convert the rest of the world to socialism, then they will attack us and mm. this will fail. I see that. Okay. But there had been a couple of attempts in, in places like Germany and France early on that had failed uh, and Greece that, that failed with the support of the British. Mm-hmm. And Stalin was like, you know what? Uh, A, when it, we, we don't have the wherewithal to support them. B, if we support them, it's going to make it harder for us to get along with the West. Yeah. So let's just do it. Do it here, and yeah. uh, we'll we'll worry about building it there later on. Quality In fact, first. as we know, because we've talked about it. Yeah. When the Chinese came to him for support, he went, mm, "I don't think so." When the Vietnamese came to him for support, he was like, yeah. mm, "I don't think so." We're good. So he he was rejecting. Yes. Offers from these other countries. Help, help us do a revolution. Right. He's like, nah, I don't yeah. think so. Nah, you want me to take my show on the road? Yeah, I don't think so. I play for the home crowd, but thank you anyway. So Stalin accused Churchill and his friends of trying to start a new war. Mm-hmm. And on paper, I would say it's probably right. Particularly, Stalin, uh, sorry, Churchill of this, uh, Churchill at this stage right. doesn't have a job. Right. Um, and he knows that he's only viewed as a wartime leader. So if I can create a new war, 
Or at least scare uh, everybody. Yeah. I'll get another crack. Yeah. And fuck it, he did. And we've look at that. Yeah, that's true. And we've already seen how uh, antagonistic Truman has been to the Soviets from the second he gets into office. So, fair call. In December 1946, Stalin actually granted a live interview to FDR's son, Elliot Roosevelt. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Roosevelt wanted to know if Stalin thought there'd been a weakening of friendship and cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union since his father had died. Mm -hmm. Stalin replied that while he thought relations between the two peoples continued to improve... Some misunderstandings had arisen between the two governments, right. but Stalin said he didn't think there would be any further deterioration in relations, ruled out the possibility of a military conflict because he said there was no basis for it. I think the threat of a new war is unreal, said Stalin. <laughs> Good call. A couple of months later, in April of 1947, he gave another interview, this time to Republican politician Harold Stassen. Damn. Again, Stalin was fairly upbeat. He said to Stassen, look, yes, there are differences in our economic systems, but we cooperated during the war yeah. with different economic systems. There's no reason we can't continue to cooperate during peacetime. We don't agree on how these things should work, but that doesn't mean we can't have peaceful coexistence and work together where appropriate. We did it during the war. It worked. We can do it in peacetime. What's the big fucking deal? <laughs> uh, the Westerners are seeing it as a zero-sum game, so that cancels out what he wants, or what he says, at least. And to be fair, he probably did too, but... Long term. Yeah, he's not, not ready. in the short term. Exactly. He said, look, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, may the best thing win. Yeah. The better system will be decided by history. Meantime, let's stop sloganising and name-calling. <laughs> he said, look, Roosevelt and I never called each other totalitarian or monopoly capitalists. I am not the propagandist. I am a man of business, said Stalin. Mm. Yeah. yeah get shit done. Now, in November of 1947, at the Common Form Conference, Andrei Zhdanov, guy who organised the conference, right. uh, his basic role was to, you know, sort of uh, uh, pull together the, like the Common Turn used to be, but to pull together the communist parties around the world. Mm -hmm. Zhdanov, who was now... He often gets referred to as Stalin's propagandist-in-chief, gave a speech where he outlined what became known as the Two Camps Doctrine. Right. Here's a, an excerpt from the speech. The further we are removed from end of war, the more clearly do the two basic orientations in post-war international politics stand out corresponding to the division into two basic camps, the imperialist and anti-democratic camp and the anti-imperialist and democratic camp. Mm. The principal leading force in the imperialist camp is United States. The fundamental aim of imperialist camp is to strengthen imperialism 
Prepare a new imperialist war, fight against socialism and democracy, and give all-round support to reactionary and anti-democratic pro-fascist regimes and movements. <clears throat> For the performance of these tasks, the imperialist camp is ready to rely on reactionary and anti-democratic elements in all countries and to back former war enemies against its own wartime allies. Mm. The anti-imperialist and anti-fascist forces constitute the other camp, with, as their mainstay, the USSR and the countries of new democracy. The aim of this camp is to fight against the threat of new wars and imperialist expansion, to consolidate democracy and to uproot what remains of fascism. Damn, just putting it right out there. Can I say on a separate issue, the way you roll your R's, probably good at oral sex. Just a guess, I don't know, but... Guess what that's saying. <laughs> um, it's the only thing I am good at, pretty much. Really, if I'm honest... It's the only thing I'm now, good see, at. See, damn it, Cam, if you'd write a book or produce a movie or a documentary about that. Anyway. I've thought about it for many, many, many years, and I've had a mm. lot of people, a lot of women, uh, <laughs> urge me to do it. Right. Um, Please show my husband how to do this. Thank you. Oh, oh the yeah. men of the world need this. Right. And I'm like, I really don't know what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> how do I... Yeah. Yeah, what would that look uh, It's like? a gift. Yeah. yeah. Do like, you do it's animation? Like, can I... I don't know. I can't, you know, I can't teach people to play Shostakovich. Uh, you know, I can't teach you to be a world-class violinist. It's right. either it's I'm born innate. With it, baby. You're born yeah. with this gift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you can't. <coughs> you can't learn. Just the women of the right. world need to come to me. And right. I'll just, <laughs> One at a time know. or three at a time, whatever. Anyway. Now, by the way, Zhidanov would be dead within a year of giving that speech. Oh, how come? Did he piss somebody off? Uh, su supposedly alcoholism. Oh, uh, gotcha. But I want to talk about him a bit more because he is the creator of what's known as Zhidanovism or the Zhidanov Doctrine. Now, I took Chrissy to a Shostakovich uh, concert recently for her birthday and, and read up on Shostakovich as part of this and on Zhidanov because Zhidanovism was Soviet cultural policy right. during this era. It was because of him that Soviet artists, writers and thinkers, the intelligentsia, mm -hmm. had to conform to the party line in their creative works. Um, just like the United States during McCarthyism were uh, terrified right. that... Soviet propaganda, socialist propaganda was making its way into Hollywood films mm -hmm. and books and other things. Um, uh, the Soviets would, were concerned that Western propaganda was making its way into Russian uh, literature and, and music and oh. plays and films and that kind of stuff. Right. So they wanted to crack down on it just as much as the Americans did. And Zhidanov was the guy that created the policy for this. So one thing in particular, when applied to composers like Shostakovich, mm -hmm. 
was uh, they needed to avoid what was known as formalism, art for art's sake, right? which didn't serve a greater social purpose. So, you know, they believe that uh, a symphony, for example, should communicate something positive and uplifting about socialism or, alternatively, the history of Russia. Mm. You couldn't just do it because it sounded good or it was clever. Right. Those were bourgeois reasons for producing art. Art had to serve a purpose, like everything else in the Soviet Union. It's a resource. Um, From each according to his abilities to each according to his work, your responsibility was to do valuable work, whether you were a composer or a writer or whatever. You had to do something to make the country a better place, to improve the lives. And just composing a piece of music because it sounded nice or you were showing off your chops was not acceptable. Gotcha. And you would be at least, at best maybe, criticised uh, and scorned if that's what you did. At worst, you could find yourself arrested right. and thrown in a thrown in a gulag. Yeah. If you if if you continued to just uh, ignore this in, in instruction. Now they also had to avoid foreign influences. Um, you know the idea that there were foreign themes being celebrated. Had to focus on Russian and socialist themes. Now again, this is one of those things that. Um, you know, I think in the West we criticise, you know, s- socialist crackdowns on what can be produced. Lo- ended up with a lot of uh, exiles like Solzhenitsyn and, uh, and and Shostakovich himself to a point. Right. A lot of ballet dancers and uh, composers and, and, and uh, Mikhail um, uh, Bulgakorov, his books were suppressed. Mm. Um, one of my favorite books, The um, Master and the Margarita, I've, I've read it a couple of times. Fantastic read, but it was, it was suppressed, snuck out of the country. But again, you know, we have to think about it in terms of McCarthyism and uh, the un American right. you know, activities and all of that sort of stuff that we've talked about on the show. America had its own version. Of this uh, for decades. Yes. You know, this went on through the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Then you had Hoover and the FBI oh continuing in the 60s and, uh, you know, in the, 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 the 70s uh, with, uh, after Hoover died, but with Nixon and that kind of stuff, cracking down on potential... Uh, pro-socialist camps and activities mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, people didn't, you know, your, your, your Hollywood uh, filmmakers didn't tend to get thrown in jails in the United States, but their lives were destroyed nonetheless right. because they couldn't work. They couldn't work, they were put on a blacklist and their lives were destroyed. Yeah. So it doesn't, it, you know, it's not a unique thing to socialism, this uh, idea of controlling the content. America also, and we haven't really talked about this yet, we should do this at some stage, probably it comes a little bit later, it's in the mid-50s, but mm-hmm. the CIA had a secret operation where they were funding American artists like Jackson Pollock. 
Jackson oh. Pollock, a lot of the commissions that he received via Peggy Guggenheim right. to paint, like the basic retainer that he was on to do whatever the fuck he wanted with modernism, she was getting the money from the CIA. Oh, my God. To, to uh, basically fund American artistic propaganda. And it wasn't just Pollock. It was a whole right. range of f- filmmakers, television. Uh, I think we talked about briefly where in the 70s, this might have been on the War on Drugs series, um, where the um, like television directors were called into uh, Nixon's office or the office of one of Nixon's guys basically said, start making TV shows that make the FBI look good <laughs> and, uh, dr- you know, drug, right. dr- people on drugs look bad. And cops right? good, dragnet and all that good yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 They went, yep, no no worries. I'm a loyal American, so, you know, Thank you. Government Government propaganda... Uh, the, the the silencing of certain voices and certain kinds of art and the um, the encouragement and direct financing and supporting of what's considered pro-ideological or ideologically accepted art mm-hmm. happened on in the West as much as it happened in the yeah. in the East during the 20th century and no doubt continues, to happen today, and we just won't find out about it for another 50 years. Right, right. Well, there was one report about um, all the money, and this is, I think this goes back to the 80s and 90s, when there was a whole bunch of money from the government, the military, basically did a deal with the uh, with the NFL, you know, look, make the military look good, let us fly rockets over, mm-hmm. everybody stands and, you know, does a pledge of allegiance or whatever, and j- just a pro-military mm-hmm. thing. I mean, it happens all yeah. the time, and... It's sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's right there in your face, but it's hard to tell because you're too busy being a non-thinking patriot. Yeah. yeah. No, you're exactly right. That was a deliberate thing they rolled out as a PR campaign after yeah. 9-11 to get Americans to support the military. Stan again. and Barry. Brilliant. Brainwashing. Yeah, yeah brilliant. The <laughs> brainwashing of the American populace. So after the common form, mm-hmm. the uh, pace of communization a uh, single-party communist control began to accelerate across Eastern Europe. Right. So it involved escalating the level of communist control of all of the levers of government, state control of the press, the uh, repression of opposition parties, the end of allowing independent left-wing parties, forcing them to merge with socialist or communist parties, um, or the, like the official socialist or communist parties in these countries, mm-hmm. basically the Sovietization of Eastern Europe, uh, imposing a Soviet model of socialism on all of these Soviet states, which up until this point in time had been allowed to loosey-goosey be part right. of the USSR. Right. They all had their own constitutions, and under the... Overarching Soviet Constitution of 1936, that Stalin basically wrote, which is a brilliant document I read in its entirety the other day. Um, really, a tremendous document. Uh, they may not have lived up to it very well, but it's a tremendous sure. document. I highly recommend people interested in this period uh, download it online and read it. Um, one of the one of the items in that is all of the socialist republics. Uh, were free to leave the USSR at any time. Huh. Unlike Lincoln's uh, view of the South, (laughs) fuck you, you can't leave, and I will kill 100,000 of you in order to prove it 
um, the uh, Soviet Constitution said you're free to leave. This no. is a this is a democratic thing. You want to be part of it, you be part of it. You don't want to be part of it, you don't have to be part of it. Now, do do you take that at face value? Wouldn't that be more just because it looks good? Because I can't imagine Poland or uh, yeah, let's just go or the or the Latvian uh, Estonian countries, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, going. You know what? We thought about it and we want out. Thank you for everything that you've done, but um, we're going to see ourselves to the door. I just have a hard time. Stall- picture Stalin going. I I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I feel you. Go, you know, live long and prosper. Well, that's not to say that he wouldn't try and influence them. Right. Uh, But there's a big difference between influencing and saying, by law, you're not allowed to go. They Mm. actually enshrined it in the Constitution. Wow. That, you know, you you join this willingly, you can leave willingly. I did not know that. Okay. Cool. Now, but... Okay, so but you know, so they they did increase the the Stalinization or the right. Sovietization of all of these countries. Yeah. The Sovietization in terms of the control, Stalinization in terms of the sort of elevation to cult leader status of the local party leaders, mm. and uh, purges, arrests, show trials, executions of people that got in the way of the party's plan for progress. Right. Well, like you said, alliteration there. Like like you said earlier, I mean they've got to, they've got to organize all of their resources, they've got to prioritize what they've got to do cuz they one they don't know how long they've got until the next war, two they definitely know they are not ready. So you it's it's like all hands on deck, all you other countries of Eastern Europe, join the program because we've got to pull together or we might lose the next war. So uh, the one I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the the common form because in that same year, 1947, and this is just to give everyone an idea of how brilliant, how dedicated, how determined the Soviets were to to catch up to the Americans because this is a national crisis for them. I just want to give a couple examples of of a few people that made huge contributions that you would think in other times this this just would not have happened. So in 1947, they set up a council of chief designers, and their job was to really work on and bring up to speed the Russian rocket program. They've got to work on that. They've got a long way to go. Because like you said, if you have a bomb, but you can't get it to the continental U.S., it's not much of a threat. All you can do is threaten Western Europe. So they have this council, and it's chaired by Sergei Korolev, who later on in the 1950s will design the first Soviet intercontinental ballistic missile. However, in 1938, he was arrested for anti-Soviet counter-revolutionary organization activities. He's going to spend six years in jail, but when he gets out, the Soviets are still looking around and they're going, does anybody, anybody know anybody smarter than him? Nope. Even though he was in jail, doesn't matter. Okay, you get the job. So, so his disgrace, his previous record was wiped out. They put him to work because he can get the job done. There's another guy on the council, Valentino Glushko. His bureau is going to go on to develop the liquid propellant rocket motors that are used by most of the Soviet missiles. Again, in March of 1938, he gets arrested by the NKVD. He is sentenced to eight years in prison in 1939. However, 
Even though he's in prison in 1941, he gets put in charge of a bureau to design to work on liquid fuel rocket engines. He's still in jail, but it doesn't matter. They go up to him and they go, we can't find anybody better than you. You've got this job. Even though you're in jail, you cannot resist. He's finally released in 1944, so he has to spend three more years in jail working for the Soviets for the betterment of their country because they, they're all getting together on this one huge program so they can defend themselves in case there's another war. So people are being arrested. It doesn't matter. They're still contributing their talent to the country. Even from jail, they're trying to make their world better and their country safer for the next war. Mm. Mm. I don't know how motivated I would be if you put me in jail. I'd be like, look, Gov. I'll work for you if you let me out, but if I have to stay in jail, I I, I can't see that. Mm. And that's when they put the electrodes in my testicles and I start working. Anyway. He lost most of his teeth from scurvy uh, while he was in jail. That's that's one of the other things, uh, you know, talking about the purges uh, and the gulags. A lot of people died in the gulags, but not... They weren't like stood up against a wall and shot or, yeah. or gassed. They died because conditions, quite often in uh, Siberia, were yep. harsh, cold, yep. brutal, wasn't a lot of food. Treatment of them was uh, not great. But then again, people across the Soviet Union were doing it tough as yes. well in the 30s. Yes. It wasn't just the people in the gulags. So, they, yeah, they were doing it tough, but, you know, treatment of people in prisons in America or in China or all around the world is never usually great. No. Anyway, yeah, he did come back, and I think it was Korolev that Stalin apologised yes. to yeah. later on. Per- yeah. Personally, in front of everybody, apologised to him for his uh, arrest and torture. My bad. My bad. And, by the way, I mean, you know, I talked in a previous episode about the extreme left apologist view for Stalin around the trials. One of the views in that is it was actually Nikolai Yeshov, the head of the NKVD, mm-hmm. who uh, you know had a lot of these people arrested. Stalin entrusted him with running the secret police and tracking down the fifth columnists and right. doing all of that. Um, he said, okay, well, if you tell me, then that's it. I'm a busy man, but you yeah. got to take care of all of that. Right. Afterwards, when he found out that Yezhov had been uh, just rounding up people to look good or oh. something, to make his, make his quota, he had Yezhov, because uh, it was referred to as Yechovina, uh in, in Russia, like the Yechov years. Right. Um, uh, Stalin had Yechov uh, arrested and executed. Damn. So you gotta trust people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But but who knows? Um, I, I read a quote from an old Bolshevik, uh, Boris Nikolevsky, mm-hmm. um, who wrote something in 1936 called "Letter of an Old Bolshevik." In that, he has Nikolai Bukharin's description of Yetsov. Right. In. In the whole of my now, alas, already long life, I had to meet few people who, by their nature, were as repellent as Yetov, 
Watching him, I am frequently reminded of those evil boys from Rastyayeva Street workshops whose favourite form of entertainment was to light a piece of paper tied to the tail of a cat drenched with kerosene and relish in watching the cat scamper down the street in maddening horror, unable to rid itself of the flames that are getting closer and closer. I have no doubt that Yechov, in fact, utilised this type of entertainment in his childhood and he continues to do that in a different form, in a different field at wow. present. Right. Um, Sick buck. He was also, his nickname was the Poison Dwarf or the Bloody Dwarf. Mm. Um, and, yeah. I mean, but again, so the counter-argument to it's all Yetzov's fault is that, well, Stalin deliberately pointed Yetzov because he knew he was a psychopath and he wanted a psychopath to get the job done. Right. Um, Who knows? And he executed him to be the, you know, the... the, the Good guy. Uh, the Tiberius. Well, the, like when Tiberius has Sejanus executed. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> the relationship. To, to Tiberius and Sejanus. You get this guy to do all of your know. dirty work and then you, I didn't yeah, know. Then you I'm so sorry. Yeah. He's the fall guy um, right. after it. Um, again, look, um, I don't think there is um, uh, enough evidence. I think there's plenty of evidence to support that Stalin did know what was going on and mm. was behind it, but um, I, you know, I still remain uh, sort of on the fence with this one. I need right. to read more about it. That's why I'm trying to read everything I can, so I can, so gotcha. I can develop um, a, 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 a better sense for how much Stalin really knew what was going on uh, versus how much Yetzov did it. Right. Um, okay. So wrapping up because we're running out of time. Mm. Um, where was I? R two, D two. Yeah, so in 1950, the Soviet Union first test-fired the R-2, which was a development of their R-1 rocket, but it had a 600-kilometre range, Mm. about double what the R-1 had. Progress. And they were already working on the SS-3, which ended up being deployed in the 1950s. So again, you know, they're developing rockets that can attack Western Europe as uh, part of their defence right. shield, defence yeah. system. They um, also by, tested their first atomic bomb on the 29th of August, 1949, almost exactly four years <laughs> after Hiroshima. I- Iggy K said, give me five years, sir. I can do this. Yeah, yeah. and he did it in four. The RDS-1. It was officially known as Codename First Lightning. <laughs> That's badass. And it was, te- it was tested at the Semipalatinsk test range. Mm. Now, did you read about the explanations for the codename of RDS-1? No, tell me. There's a couple of them. Uh-huh. No one really knows. Uh. It's suggested it's uh, an acronym or a backronym for special jet engine, right. um, which is Divagetel uh, Specialni, sure, RDS, or Reaktivni Divagetel Stalina, Stalin's jet engine, right, 
Or Russia Deliet Sama, Russia does it herself. <laughs> oh, I kind of like that. I'm going to go with door number three. I kind of like that one. I like that one too. Yeah. 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 So 1949, they have their first bomb. There was uh, This was a plutonium bomb. Mm-hmm. The first test of a uranium-235 bomb didn't take place until 1951. But this one, their first bomb was an implosion type, like Fat Man, right. the bomb named after Churchill, <laughs> that the US dropped on Nagasaki. Uh-huh. Uh, RDS-1 had a yield of 22 kilotons of TNT, the same as Fat Man or roughly similar. Right. And it's no coincidence that that was the first bomb because they did get uh, the spies did send them pretty much uh, large part of the design ah, right for Fat Man, gotcha. so they were able to copy that, which is one of the reasons it was probably faster than Iggy K had predicted. Mm-hmm. Now the U.S. picked up on the test, Ray. How <clears throat> did the U.S. know the Russians had oh. exploded a bomb? I don't know. Is there some kind of sensors or is there a spy? I am I am excited. Tell me, how did they figure it out? Yeah, they had the US Air Force had distributed a number of WB-29 weather reconnaissance aircraft, right. which was fitted with these special kind of filters that could collect atmospheric radioactive debris. Right. So they're flying around Europe, just picking up dust out of the air right. and then testing it for radioactive dust. It, it, that and seems like a needle in a haystack. Sorry. It just seems like a, we're just going to keep testing the air for years. Or do they have a sense mm-hmm. that maybe the Russians were getting closer to this ability? Well, they knew they were going to get there one day, but right. they still thought it was a long ways off. But just oh, as a precautionary measure. We better test the air. And on the 1st of September, 1949, one of these uh, planes flew from Japan to Alaska, picked up some debris during the flight. This is only a couple of days after the first Soviet test. Right. Uh, The data was then cross-checked with data from later flights, and it was determined that the Soviet Union had effectively tested a nuclear weapon, which the US codenamed... Joe won, in reference to Uncle Joe Stalin. Thank you. So now the Soviets have the bomb and the Americans know about it. And Truman announced it publicly Mm. and terrified Americans. Yeah. Now, it, it was generally believed in the United States at the time, that the Soviets wouldn't have a bomb until at least the early 1950s. Right. They thought they had another few years, oh. at least, you know, or as late as 1955. Right. Um, they thought when they dropped their bombs in 45, they thought they had a 10-year head start on the Russians. Oh. Turned out it was four years. On the 23rd of September, Truman gave a speech we have evidence that within recent weeks, an atomic explosion occurred in the USSR. And that enabled him to justify speeding up work on thermonuclear weapons. Because you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be one, you gotta be able to turn it up to 11. Right. 
Well, that's fine, but I have a bomb that's a 7. It can destroy a city. You have a bomb that's an 11 that can really destroy the city. I mean, is there a difference if everybody in the city's dead and the city's leveled? But I guess, yeah, you keep... I mean, it's, it's brinkmanship. You keep raising the stakes. Yeah. Now, this bomb, like a thermonuclear bomb, would have a yield... Many, many times greater. Like the nuclear weapons that we have today, I can't remember the numbers, but there's something like a thousand times more powerful than the bombs that landed on Hiroshima. Now, the good thing, I mean, okay, so there's some practical things here. It means you need less uh, material Uh, to build these, right? right? Which means you can build more of them. Thank you. Two. Well, yeah, you can blow up more cities (laughs) simultaneously. You're scaring me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking like there about are economic megaton. reasons. Right, right. It's not just about the size of the explosion. It's about, you know, how... Then, the you know, like, if you can create a, a massive explosion in terms of yield from a small amount of nuclear material, then you can build suitcase bombs oh, and stuff like that. good point. Uh, you know, you can start hiding them in places. Backpack bombs. Gotcha. You know, briefcase bombs. Right. That's when you start to get creative with this killing people shit. Do you, I'm sorry, I know we're about to wrap up and whatever, but do you still find it amazing that atomic bombs were never used again during the Cold War? I just, there are times I'm like, oh my God, we could have, because it's to the point now where two countries, the United States and Russia can fight. And in that fight, we could destroy most of the known world. I mean, I just find it. These guys are fucking crazy, but I guess when you're fearful of the other guy, you keep ratcheting it up, hoping that you'll always have a, an advantage over the other guy. I'm, yeah, I'm just free. Ba- I'm just think about going, the yeah. Think about the hundreds of billions of dollars, possibly trillions yeah. of dollars. But we still can't afford health care in America. I just even though we, if we yeah. had never built the single bomb, we still couldn't afford health care because it's too expensive. But I digress. But not just America, like the the oh, yeah. standard of living oh, for, yeah. in the Soviet Union yeah. and and Cuba we, and North Korea and all these countries we have flying cars that when when they had their socialist revolution they immediately right. needed to invest in military capability to prevent American oh good point uh, 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 invasions direct yeah. or indirect intimidation uh, you know yeah. It, yeah, yeah. So uh, they had to divert all of these funds and 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 energy and brain power and whatever. What Can't be building your your domestic infrastructure. <laughs> you have to put it into developing right. military to avoid being invaded or attacked or bombed or whatever, um, or to at least have uh, counter strike capability right. if that happens. Right. Uh, now, of course, this massive build up in the U.S. that Truman then started was. Very controversial, particularly in the scientific community. The General Advisory Committee of the Atomic Energy Commission under Oppenheimer's chairmanship at the time recommended in October 1949 against an all-out effort of building more powerful nuclear capability. They argued that, and quote, the extreme dangers to mankind inherent in the proposal wholly outweigh any military advantage that could come from this development. Yeah, but that gets cancelled off by what you just said. If I can build a more powerful bomb with less material, and I'm probably saving money in the process, why wouldn't the government 
take that action? I mean, from a military point of view and political point of view. Well, because you're never going to use it, so... Why build a point? Good point. Yeah. Now, some yeah, some people argue that Truman's decision was correct because the Soviet Union tested a new thermonuclear bomb in August of 1953, and they were actually the first yeah. country to test a thermonuclear bomb. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I just think it was... I don't know, man. Like, really, when's enough enough? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But see, but the point, I think the point we're trying to make is, so we had the bomb, now the Russians have the bomb. Okay, you, you would think that they cancel each other out, we can have some kind of stability. But no, it's the beginning of the arms race because now we're working on a more powerful bomb. They're, we're working on a more powerful bomb because they got the bomb in general. They hear about us working on another more powerful bomb, so they're going to up their game. It's it's that arms race mentality that gets started at this point that made the world, like the scientists were saying, truly a dangerous place to be in. Now, I want to point out that the thermonuclear bomb that the Soviets uh, tested in 1953 wasn't a super bomb. Right. It it had it was uh, called Joe Four in the West. It had a yield of between 200 to 400 kilotons, mm-hmm. whereas the first thermonuclear bomb that the US tested in February 1954 had a yield of 15 megatons. <laughs> Jesus. It wasn't until November 1955 that the Soviet Union tested a super bomb that had a yield of then of only 1.6 right. megatons. But everybody's keeps ranching, ratcheting it up. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, but this first test that the Soviets did in August of 1949 um, really ramped up American research and policy and commitment, which in turn stimulated Soviet research and development, yeah, and we get well and truly into the arms race. Kurchatov in 1948 set up a theoretical group under Igor Tam uh, to basically build the, the super bomb. Mm-hmm. They were getting intel out of Klaus Fuchs, a spy in the UK, right. who was telling them about research that was going on in Los Alamos with the super bomb. So, you know, they, they really just start, it, it's never ending yes. from this point on. Yes. For the rest of the Cold War, both sides are just spending insane amounts of money yeah. on building incredibly destructive weapons that they know they're never going to use. Right. I, I just have to say real quick, um, I remember being a kid in 19, early 1980s, and I remember Reagan giving a speech, and I was just a kid, I don't even know why I was watching this, but... He was saying the Russians have X amount number of these type of missiles, and we've only got this many. And as a kid, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. We need to have as many as they do. It doesn't matter that with our smaller number of missiles or whatever, we could have destroyed the world 10 times over. We need to be able to destroy the world 20 times over because the Russians can't. But in a very simplistic way... He was such a good salesman, Reagan was. He just made it make sense. Yes, we have to keep up with them, even though, one, we're not going to use these missiles, and two, we can already obliterate them 10 times over. But it just was the mentality of the Americans at the time to just keep that going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the Americans did it, then the Russians did it. Yes. Then the Russians heard that the Americans were building a bigger one, 
so they raced to build a bigger one. Right. And then the Americans heard that the Russians were, had the bigger one, so they had to build an even bigger one. Or more bigger ones. And it just yeah, went exactly. backwards and forwards. I just want to wrap up by talking about Iggy K. Yeah. Um, in January of 1949, Iggy K, the guy who developed First Lightning, the first bomb, right. uh, was involved in a serious accident mm. called uh, Chelyabinsk 40. So the site, Chelyabinsk 40, was a, uh, like a reactor. It's right. possible that even more people died from this nuclear catastrophe than Chernobyl. Shit. But you just don't hear about it as much. Right. And basically it was having some sort of a meltdown and Kurchatov raced into the middle of it to save the uranium and the plutonium that was going on in the middle there because he didn't want it to get wasted. Right. And he ran into a damaged reactor full of radioactive gases. Damn. And, uh, you know, he, he then had a stroke uh, five years later, died in 1960 of a cardiac embolism, age right. 57. But that's how committed Jesus. this guy was. He ran into the middle of a meltdown. <laughs> nope. Nope. To save his minerals. Um, that's dedication, my friend. Yeah, I, I really. It's also yeah. it's all sorry. It's also known as the. Uh, if you're looking this up, it's known as the Kishtim. Oh no, this is a later disaster. This is 1947, I think. The Kishtim disaster. Right. Um, there was it was a, another leakage of radioactive material that came out of there. Right. Anyway, yeah. I I thought you were going to say he ran in to save the material. Obviously, gets infected. If his friends come as close as they can, but not too close, he puts his hand on the glass and he says, I have mm. been and always shall be your friend, and then died. Mm. That's where I thought you no, were then going. He, then he, his pants split and he turned into the Incredible Hulk, but he was a Red Hulk who then battled the... Bill ba- uh, right? Robert Bruce Banner, yeah. Bruce Banner... Uh, and that's... Uh, Green Hulk. And that's history, my friends. That's fact. The Hulk, that, the Hulk off. Right. And that is about as history as you can get, my friends. <laughs> and this and that is all we have with the Hulk off. And we finish with the Hulk off. <laughs> I'm not going to cry. Smash!